The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to look at the curse today from Genesis 3. Now, I'm sure you're aware that the eschatological view of preterism is constantly being attacked. You know, people are writing articles and they're trying to tell why we're wrong and how we're wrong. And I guess it's because people just want to hang on to the rapture, you know, get sucked off the planet. Or maybe they're just looking forward to the Great Tribulation and they'd hate to miss that, you know. Or maybe just the destruction of the earth during the Tribulation. So I don't, you know, I don't get that. Preterism is a very positive eschatology. But in my first year as a preterist, I read every argument that I could find against it because I was trying to get out of it. (laughs) I was. I was trying to get out because I wanted to be normal. Well, my wife will tell you I've never been normal, so I guess we're just stuck here. But 27 years later, I still have not found a biblical argument against it. Not at all. And recently, I've been questioned by two different people about the curse of Genesis 3. And I've never heard this argument before, so I was kind of surprised. But uh, they said, they stated that when the Lord returned, the curse was supposed to be removed. So if the Lord returned, we shouldn't be under the curse. So uh, this is what the verse they'll use for their support. Revelation 22.3 says, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. Well, This is referring to the new heavens and new earth after the second coming. And it seems to say that the curse will be removed. I say seems to say because there's a translation issue here. All right. But before we look at this verse in Revelation, let's go back to the beginning and look at the curse and see if we can figure out what's exactly going on here with the curse and then understand if it has been removed or if it hasn't. Uh, let's go back to the creation of man. In Genesis 2.7, says, Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So Yahweh creates the man. And then He takes the man and He moves him into Eden, the garden of God, the cosmic mountain, the dwelling place of Yahweh, the place where Yahweh holds counsel. Verse 8 says, And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He formed. So Adam was formed outside the garden, brought into the garden temple, into an intimate relationship with Yahweh and the divine counsel. And Adam and Eve dwelt in the very presence of Yahweh. Now how long was it after Adam was created that God brought him in the garden? Anybody know? Huh? Right away? We, you know, how do we know? The Scripture doesn't tell us, right? We have no timeline about that in Scripture. But the book of Jubilees says this, And after Adam had completed 40 days in the land where he had been created, we brought him into the Garden of Eden. Now, that's interesting, 40 years. Now, the book of Jubilees is a pseudepigrapher work. It's called the Lesser Genesis. It was written in the 2nd century B.C. 
and records the account of the biblical history of the world from the creation to Moses. All right, it's an interesting read. Again, this is literature that the Yeshua and the disciples and all the people at that time were very familiar with. All right, Genesis 2.15 says, And Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You will surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So in the garden, I mean, God brings them in the garden and He gives them one command. That's it. One, can you imagine? That's the only command you have. One. Do anything you want in this garden. Eat anything you want. Go where you want. Do whatever you want, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One command. You think he could, uh, you think he could keep one command, right? Well, then part of the problem was the next thing God did was created Eve. Okay? So that caused some trouble. We get to chapter 3, and the serpent, which I believe was a watcher, a divine being, comes to Eve, tempts her, and she takes of the forbidden fruit and she eats it. And then she gives it to Adam, and he eats it also. And then something happened when they ate it. And the Scripture says, The eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now they're living in the presence of God. Now they realize we're not clothed at all. We've got to clothe ourselves. So their eyes are open, and they experience the shame of nakedness, and they hide from God's presence. They lived in an intimate fellowship with Yahweh, and now they're hiding from Him. How long was it that Adam and Eve were in the garden before they sinned? Again, the Scripture doesn't tell us, but again, the book of Jubilees says that Adam was in the garden for seven years before he sinned. I mean, you read the Scripture and it sounds like God said, don't do this. He put him in the garden. He did it. Boom. The next day he's gone, you know. Seven years. So he had some time to fellowship with God. I don't think he, you know, gave up the first day. Uh, that's, that's kind of encouraging to me that he lasted seven years, you know. Well, after that, Yahweh comes and he confronts Adam and Eve because of what they did. When he confronts them, who did Adam blame? All right, he blamed Eve, but he also blamed somebody else. The woman you gave me. What? Yeah, I mean, God said, Adam, what have you done? Well, God, you gave me that woman. That's the problem. If it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't have done this. Eve blames the serpent, okay? And then in verses 14 through 19, we have God's judgment on them for their sin. But before we look at that, we need to realize that the sin brought death just as God said it would. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He did. Now what we have to understand, the nature of the death for disobedience in the garden was spiritual death. It was not biological death. I believe that man was created mortal. Okay? That's always been man. That was the creation order. If he had never disobeyed, I believe he still would have died because we weren't made to live here, okay, forever. Well, they didn't die physically that day, but they did die spiritually. They lost fellowship and they lost communion with Yahweh. And God puts them out of the garden, away from His presence, after He makes them clothing from animal hides. 
Now, in 3.23, it says, Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. So they brought in Eden, the presence of God. Now God drives him out of Eden at the east to the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So he puts a cherubim there, an angel with a sword. You're not coming back in this garden. And if you read the book of Adam and Eve, they spent the rest of their lives trying to get back. They spent the rest of their lives in agony and pain because of what they did. All right, now with that as a background, let's read about God's further judgment on them because of their sin. They lost fellowship with God, but there were more consequences to it than that. And in 3.14-19 through 19 it says, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Now we're going to see in this text that he's speaking to three different people. Starts with the serpent, then he goes to Adam, and then he goes to Eve, or Eve and then Adam. All right? It says, And God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. All right, hang on to that. He's cursing the serpent because of this. Above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said. All right, so here's the second player in this thing. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, so here's our third player, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And again, the curse was on on Satan, the cur- or the serpent, and the curse is on the ground. Because of you, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So we see three different players here. We see the serpent, the woman, and Adam. Now, for this morning, I'm just going to focus on Adam and Eve, all right? The judgment on the serpent was fully carried out in A.D. 70 on the day of the Lord, when the nations got judged and their gods got judged with them. Psalm 82, judgment has been fulfilled. The rebellious gods are destroyed. Now, the question here becomes, did the punishments God gave Adam and Eve have everlasting effects? Or we could ask, do they continue even to today? Or were they removed at some point? And if they were, what point were they removed? 3.16, Genesis. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. I think it's important here that we understand that God doesn't say to Eve, Cursed are you. He does to the serpent, he does to the ground, but he does not say that to Adam and Eve. There's no curse per se placed on the woman, but she still reaps effects that are great here. To the woman who's in labor, or to the man sweating out in the field under the sun, they still seem like they're cursed, all right? But that language is not used. She's not cursed, but she does have consequences for her actions. 
To the woman, he said. This is specific. Divine judgment is very apparent in the sentence because the punishment stands in direct relation to the sin of the woman. It's a penalty consistent with her iniquity. Now, there are two judgments seen here for the woman. The first one is, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Now, I'm not sure when this was removed, but we all know this is no longer in effect. Right, Kaylin? <laughs> I mean, women don't have pain in childbirth anymore, do they? <laughs> oh, did you have pain? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Okay, maybe that blows my whole theory. All right, well, forget, forget it. No, I'm being facetious, okay? We all know women have pain in childbearing. Kaylin just had a baby a month ago, so it's still fresh in her mind, you know? Okay? The Hebrew construction here literally says, causing to be great, I shall cause to be great your sorrow. He says it twice. The idea here is intensification. I'm going to bring upon you a great sorrow, and that sorrow is going to come in the area of your children. Now today, we have pain medicines, and we have surgeries that can help relieve the pain of the woman in childbirth. But for most of human history, and in third world countries today, women routinely die in childbearing. Okay? Now the Hebrew word for pain here is itzavon. And it means labor, pain, sorrow, toil. It's a word that encompasses the experience and the emotion. In fact, one lexicon translates it this way. Itzavon means everything that is hard to bear. So the woman is punished in the most intimate way. And throughout the remainder of her life, there's going to be this reminder by disappointments and sorrows that she will find her deepest pain in the lives of her children. Simeon said to Yeshua, his mother, Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. And so thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Her love for her child was going to cause a sword to pierce her heart. A mother's children are always their children and can bring her the greatest suffering. Now, to the woman, Yeshua also, I don't think we'd have a lot of debate today about women having pain in childbirth. People think the curse is gone, but they still, well, he must have forgot that part. But So women still have pain in childbirth. But he also says this to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The ESV is a good translation here. Okay, the New American Standard says this. Your desire will be for your husband. Does that sound different? <laughs> okay, so again, translations matter. That's why I encourage you to use several when you're reading because it's hard to find good ones. But the ESV is, for the most part, I think, a good translation. Now, some have suggested that this means sexual desire. In other words, okay, you're going to have pain bringing children but you're still going to want your husband, even though there's painful. And so that's maybe how they'd get around that. But all right, which it makes more sense in the ESV. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. All right, you have pain in childbirth and you say, stay away from me. Okay, you'll be contrary to your husband. All right. But I don't see this as talking about sexual desire at all. All right. The Hebrew word for desire here, teshuka, 
And its meaning can be seen in Genesis 4-7, which is the only other use of the word in the Torah. So if we go to 4-7, it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Yahweh here is speaking to Cain, and he says, Sin desires you. What does that mean? Well, teshuka is from the Arabic root that means this, to seek to control. So he's saying sin wants to control you. Sin wants to dominate you. It wants to take over your life, but you must master it. You must rule over it. So we see that, listen, 15 verses from Genesis 3.16 to 4.7, and you have the exact duplication of the phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same exact phrases in the Hebrew. So the woman desires, the text is saying, to control her husband. And he is going to rule over her. Now literally it could read this way. You shall seek control over your husband. You'll desire to exert your will. You will desire to take charge, to be in control, to master. That is a judgment from Yahweh on the woman. Now you guys may be thinking, that sounds more like a judgment on us. Right? (laughs) I know you won't want to say it, but you're thinking it, okay? Well, we'll get to how this is a judgment on the woman in just a second here, but she took the place of leadership in the garden. He submitted to her And he was therefore sentenced to have to deal with such rebellion on a permanent basis. Now, so, okay, part of this judgment of God on Eve is you're going to desire to rule your husband. Glad the curse is gone. Women don't do that anymore. (laughs) No? (laughs) Okay, I better move on, right? Peter tells the believing wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the believing wife is to have a meek, a quiet spirit. She's to call her husband Lord, as Sarah did to Abraham, showing her submission. People, that's not how it is in the world. Okay, the woman, the wife wants to control. You may have never seen this. I've done a lot of marriage counseling. I've seen this a whole lot. Okay, the man has to deal with the fact that the wife wants to control every aspect. Some husbands just say, whatever, and give in and just submit. There's a lot of submissive husbands out there. Others put up a fight. And it's quite a fight. All right. This is part of the judgment. Now our text in verse 16 goes on to say, but he shall rule over you. The word rule here is the Hebrew mashal, and it means to dominate, to reign. It literally means to install an office. The idea is, as the woman seeks to master her husband, as she seeks to control him, he dominates her. As a woman tends toward rebellion, the man tends towards despotism. She isn't going to live her life in total independence like the feminists demand because her husband's going to rule over her. 
And so you have the battle of the sexes right here, people. Folks, if you wonder why there's so much conflict in marriage, there it is. The woman's trying to control, the man's trying to dominate, and you got a problem. All right? Seen it so many times. But I, for one, am glad that this is no longer in effect. I'm glad that my wife desires to submit to me, and I want to treat her with gentleness and respect all the time. Again, I'm being facetious, okay? <laughs> we see this in marriage today. Nothing has changed. Women still desire to control their husband. Just go out in public and watch a couple together. Watch what happens, okay? The men still try to, you know, dominate. Nothing's changed. And you know, if you look at human history, men have been very active in degrading women, okay? Women have known a measure of misery throughout human history. This is part of the reason why. I mean, men have used and abused women. They treat them unkindly. They treat them unfaithfully, indifferently. And in some societies, many societies even today, women have been viewed as animals, as servants, as slaves, as sexual instruments. It still happens. Look at the Muslim countries. The women are all covered up with their eyes and they, I mean... They're not allowed to do, they're not allowed to speak to men. They're locked in the house. Just so many places men are just dominating over the women. If you study the Greek society, they treat they thought women were lower than animals. They used them basically for breeding. That's all they cared about. Okay? So women have seen this through history. Men dominating over them. Even in our society today. Husbands get rid of their wives when they find someone better, when they like someone else. And that's not new either, because the Jews did the same thing. They developed a system where you could give your wife a certificate of divorce if you didn't like something about her. If she burned the breakfast, you're out of here. It's the last time I'm eating that garbage, you know, we'll get rid of you and get a new wife. You know, it was really Judaism and Christianity that elevated and protected women. I mean, God talks about the widow and how they are to care for him. He talks about a protection. Christianity has done so much for women. It teaches that men or women are equal in their spiritual relationship. And she is the weaker vessel and men are to look out to care for them. You don't see that anywhere else. Christianity has done a lot to elevate the role of the woman. So we see that the woman is judged in the realm where she lives her life. It affects her child rearing. It affects her relationship with her husband. The home is where God designed the woman to be. Oh, God forbid I say that in our day and time, okay? But that's the biblical realm, all right? That's her realm. That's her sphere. And so God places a unique judgment on her in her realm so it's going to find life particularly difficult and bringing children in the world and in a relationship with her children and her husband is going to be difficult because she took the lead. She led the man into sin, usurping the role, acting independently of him in the temptation and overturning the divine order. So let's look at what Yeshua says to the man. Verse 17 through 19. To Adam he said, because you listen to the voice of your wife, I have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, your dust to dust you shall return. Now notice again, the man's not cursed here. The ground is cursed because of the man. Yahweh didn't curse Adam. He didn't specifically curse Eve. They get judgment in here, but he's not saying he cursed them, all right? He's going to greatly increase pain and childbearing, but he doesn't call that a curse. And for Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. So neither of these are laid directly against mankind. Now to Adam, he said, this is the first time that man is called Adam in the Scriptures. The Hebrew grammar here indicates that the word for man, Adam, should now be considered a proper name because the definite article is dropped. Up till now, it's been the Adam. And now it's Adam. And down in verse 20, Eve is mentioned for the first time. So Yahweh says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Guys, sometimes listening to your wife is a good thing. Okay? Sometimes it's the wisest, the smartest thing you can do. But it's wrong to listen to your wife if she contradicts the Word of God. If she's asking you to do something that is biblically, scripturally wrong, you're not supposed to be listening then, okay? He says, cursed is the ground because of you. The word ground here is Adama. The man is Adam. So the ground is Adama because... The man, Adam, comes from the ground, dust to dust. So Adam was in Eden. He's in this beautiful garden full of fruits, vegetables, but now the ground's cursed. And now there's going to be problems raising food. And God made his life very hard, man's life, in, the, in regard to this. No more easy, you know, in the garden they're picking fruit from the trees in Eden. They're just enjoying life. Now it's going to be hard. Now it's going to be painful labor working the ground among thorns and thistles to produce enough to keep you alive. Now, what is a cursed ground? Well, a cursed ground either lacks water or has too much water. It's got problems with the soil, problems with weeds, problems with the weather, problems with destructive animals. Problems with destructive birds, with organisms, insects. Those are problems that plague the ground. Have you ever tried to grow a garden or have a nice lawn? Then you'll know something about what this is about. Because you just can't plant it out there and everything grows, everything's fine. You've got to deal with the weeds, you've got to deal with the insects, you've got to deal with so much animals trying to destroy what you planted. Now, Sure, modern farming has made much easier for man, you know, with chemicals, with modern machinery, but farmers still struggle, okay? They got to keep adding nutrients back into the ground. They got to fight against the weather. They got to fight against drought. They're, they're always fighting. It's a tough life being a farmer. And again, you go to a third world country and you'll see people out there with very primitive instruments, you know, a wooden plow behind an animal or something trying to dig the ground up. And then you got rocky soil and you got just constant problems getting the ground to produce something. 
I think what's really interesting and what's totally missed in most translations of this text, the EIV, the ESV, I mean, does get it, is that there's a parallel description of the consequences for both men and women. It uses the, the very same word to describe both sexes, how they both will suffer. All right? The woman's work is childbearing, while the man's work is providing food. But both types of work are described with the word itzabon, pain, labor, sorrow, toil. Most translations translate these two words differently. So you don't see this in there. But both the man and the women, they're equally pained. They have equal punishments because they share the blame. The woman is pained in childbearing. The man is pained trying to provide for his family. Now, the woman's place is the home. The man's place is the workplace or the field. In Genesis, that's toiling out in the field. It was an agricultural realm in which men lived. Her world is the family. She's pained in her world. His world is the field or the workplace, and he's pained in the workplace. And human labor is in view here to the man. It's not just agriculture. It's more than that. It's the work which man engages in to produce, to take care of his family. Now, if this view is correct, it alerts us to the inherent tendency of the fallen nature of each sex. The woman wants to dominate her husband. The man wants to dominate his wife. Sin has corrupted both willing submission of the wife, and the loving headship of the husband. When I do marriage counseling and when I do a wedding, always part of the vows, I mean the, the ceremony, is that reminding the woman your call is to be submissive to your husband. And reminding the husband your call is to love your wife. And I always get feedback on that submission thing because people, oh my word. I don't think I've ever done a wedding when some woman didn't come to me. I don't know about that submission thing. I'm like... It, talk to God. I didn't. I'm just reading what He said. Okay, but that's different. They don't like it, especially in our day and time. And that's again part of what's causing the problem. There wants to be a dominance. Now, what's interesting here is this word "itzavon" is only used three times in the Scripture, and they're all connected. We have two of them here. There's a third one, and we'll look at that in a second because it's connected to these. Now. There have been proposed different theories concerning the extent of the curse and its consequences. You got futurists that say the curse is still in effect. You got futurists that say the curse is gone. You got preterists that say the curse is still in effect. You got preterists that say the curse is gone. So it doesn't have to do with futurism or preterism. It just some people say it's here, some people say it's gone. All right? I think it's really difficult to put forth a good argument that the curse has been removed when you just look at humanity. Okay? I mean, women are still having pain in childbirth. Men are still struggling to produce a living. Let's look at this third use of this um, word here. It's sabon. It's found in Genesis 5. Genesis 5.29. And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, after a thousand years, more than a thousand years of being cursed, Lamech laments the ever-present painful conditions that have not changed since Adam's sin. 
But a light of mercy and hope appears here. We see Noah was prophesied to bring us relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now the word here, cursed, is arar. And that's the same word used for curse in Genesis 3 where for the serpent and the ground. That's the word curse from there. The word pain here, it's avon, same word used in Genesis 3.16 of the woman and of the man. It's talking about the curse that Yahweh placed on the ground. The one we just looked at in Genesis 3. But it's also talking about how Noah is going to bring relief from that curse. Now I think that much is clear. It's talking about the same curse, same thing, same exact words, but somehow Noah is going to bring relief. The difficulty comes in figuring out how does Noah bring relief from the curse? Some say relief from the ground came, relief from the curse on the ground came in, in Genesis 8. So let's look at 8. It says, When Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The word for curse here is kalal. And the word used for curse in Genesis 3 and 5 is arar. So my question would be, if this is referring to the ground curse, why use a different word here? The same word was used in 5. Why change here? We got the same book. We got the same author. Why use a different word if you mean curse? It'd be a lot easier for us to track if you use that word because it's only used three times. This would be the fourth, and we'd say, oh, no, we know what curse he's talking about. Well, the word kalal used here for curse is used in verse 8 and verse 11 of the same chapter, and there it's translated subdued. All right? So this is not talking about the same thing at all. Yahweh is here promising that He would never again wipe out all life on the earth as He had done. He Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing as I've done. He's talking about the flood. It just happened. He says, I won't do that again. Okay? I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to wipe out people like I did. Why? Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Men are evil. They'll always be evil. I'm not going to wipe them all out anymore. I won't do that. That's what, that's what Genesis is saying. It's not anything to do with the ground curse. Now, Keith Rassman, in an article entitled, Is the Ground Still Cursed Today? He supports the view that the ground curse was lifted in Genesis 8. And then he says this, If the curse is gone, does this mean that no sticker bushes and thistles should remain at all? Of course not. Wait a minute. They're part of the curse of curses removed. Shouldn't they be removed? He says, what we have today is a pale comparison to what it would have been like in the time before the flood. Okay, so I'm going to put this curse on the man, but I'm going to lighten it up a little. Not remove it totally, because they'll still be there. He says, what we see today is a residual effect of a ground once so cursed. Thorns and thistles, while common today, are by no means overwhelming or alarming nor do they continually spring up along the crops that have planted your... What? Has he not planted any crops? Has he not done any gardening? This is totally ignorant. And listen, the ground curse was not just about thorns and thistles. He said, in pain you will eat it all the days of your life. 
Work is a difficult, it's a struggle, it's a pain. But he says, hey, it's gone. So here's the question. How did Noah bring rest from the curse? The ground curse, that's what it's talking about. The curse on the ground, Noah's going to bring relief. How do you do that? No guesses? I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I say that because I've never heard this, don't know anybody else that teaches this. So, I'm asking you to be a Berean, you research this on yourself, you see what you figure out. But I think the rest, the rest or relief here comes when we get to chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 is talking about after the flood, and it says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you, the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Then verse 3 says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, as I have given you the green plants, I've given you everything. Do you see how they're getting rest from the curse there? How? Huh? Okay, that's right. They're getting rest because he says, hey, uh, eat whatever you want. It's not removed, but he says he's going to bring rest. And the word rest is home, which means comfort, ease. So how did it happen? Well, as far as we know from the biblical record, up to this point, men ate only vegetables. Up to the time of the flood, men ate only vegetables. So his pain came from trying to produce the produce. Okay? That's where the pain is coming from. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in it, you shall have them for food. So what God give man to eat? Plants and fruits. Vegetables, right? Again, in chapter 3, we see the pronouncement of the curse. Yahweh says this, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants. So your pain is trying to produce the produce. You're trying to get the plants to grow. That's your pain. That's your, that's your food. Well, he says, guess what? After the flood, you can eat meat now if you want. Okay? You can eat meat. This would have given relief from the burden of farming. This would have reduced the pain of producing produce because just think, now he doesn't have to spend months. I got to get the seeds. I got to plant it. I got to keep it going months before I get anything to eat. Now I just go out and kill an animal. Eat it raw, cook it, whatever. But I can do that really quickly, okay? So this is a relief from that burden. We can eat meat. Now, the Talmud seems to back up this view. The Talmud says, Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, Adam was not permitted to eat, as the verse reads, it will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth, for you and for your beasts, but not the beasts for you. And when the children of Noah came, God permitted meat, as it says in Genesis 9.3, like the green vegetation, I've given you everything. So they, the, you know, the Talmud seems to agree that man was strictly vegetarian until after the flood. 
Now, there is a verse in the book of Jasser that seems to contradict this. Jasser says this, And Cain his brother Abel in anger, and he said unto him, What is there between me and thee, that thou comest to dwell and bring this flock to feed in my land? And Abel answered his brother Cain and said to him, What is there between me and thee, that thou should eat the flesh of my flock and clothe thyself with their wool? So, this, if this is true, then I don't know how Noah brought relief from the ground curse, okay? Because this seems to indicate, well, they were eaten. But the Bible, and listen, when, it, when the pseudepigrapha contradicts the Bible, I'm going with the Bible every time, okay? It's a simple, th- simple thing there. Pseudepigrapha, I think, is very helpful. It gives us understanding of their beliefs in and, and that time. But I'm, I'm going to stick with the Bible here because there's just... From the biblical record, we just don't get anything about them eating meat until after the flood. All right, Things changed after the flood. So originally, man was on a vegetarian diet, and that was changed at the flood. Now, vegetarians who don't like this, because they're you know, trying to push their way of life, will say, it wasn't God's original plan for us to eat meat. And I'll say true, but His original plan was for us to go around naked. And that changed... So things did change, okay? They've changed. Yahweh commanded the Israelites to eat meat at the first Passover. Understand, this is a command, all right? You couldn't be a vegetarian at Passover. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And Yahweh told Peter, again, another command, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. You're not going to go killing vegetables, okay? You're going to kill meat, all right? So these are commands. So obviously Peter wasn't a vegetarian either. Now, the problem with this is our government got involved. And in the 80s, the government came and said, eating meat is unhealthy. Eating butter is unhealthy. You should eat margarine. And margarine's one molecule away from plastic, Okay? That's what you should eat. Well, it's just crazy. So if you're still living in the 80s, then maybe you think meat is unhealthy because you're following the government pyramid. If you want to follow the government pyramid, turn it upside down. Turn that pyramid on its head, then you'll do a lot better, okay? But the latest up-to-date evidence is that meat is very good for you. Very good for you. Soybeans and pasta will kill you, okay? After shriveling up your backbone and turning men into soy boys, okay? But meat, red juicy meat with a bunch of fat in it is going to keep you healthy and alive for a long time. I know that's contrary against what they say, but I belong to several carnivore groups, okay? And it's just interesting the feedback that you get. I think most of you know Jordan Peterson is. His daughter Michaela had all kinds of physical problems. One of her main problems was she was severely depressed. The doctor, but by the time she was 16, she had two joints replaced, and other joints were, she was just a mess with rheumatoid arthritis. Somehow she got on the carnivore diet, okay, and and she found out that she has to stick to ruminant animals, okay, on that diet. So she's eating beef, and she discovered not only did all her health problems go away, her depression lifted, and it's gone. 
She said, I didn't even think about it, didn't expect it, but my depression's gone. Why? Because she eats meat. Now, one of the reasons for this, people, is because when you eat only meat, guess what you cut out? All processed foods. All seed oils. All the stuff they put in foods that are trying to kill you. You're not eating that. So, yes, you're going to feel better. Okay? It's just like people that go on a strict vegetarian diet. Why do they feel better? Again, they're not putting all that processed crap in there. The advantage of a carnivore diet, there's a lot of healthy stuff in meat. People say, well, you can't sustain that. I know a lady who's spent 60 years strict carnivore. She's 82. She still works on a cattle ranch every day. And you never know she's 82 by looking at her, okay? And the testimony after testimony is people telling what, went, what health problems went away when they went on the carnivore diet and how they felt. And I've heard this from several people about the depression lifting. So I just think, you know, that's, that's amazing. Now, if you want to eat vegetables, I don't care. If you only want to eat vegetables, I don't care. Just don't push that on anybody else, you know, because that's the problem. It, it, it's not sustainable. You've got to add something to it to keep yourself alive. But um, So, well, how do we get on this subject? Let's move on. <laughs> Let me tell you, I love meat, okay? So I don't have a problem being a carnivore because you know, meat is sure is good. My wife says it's a little bit expensive, this diet, but, uh, <laughs> and it is when you're only eating meat. But you can eat cheap cuts of meat. You can eat you know, hamburg. Hamburgers, I eat hamburg probably every day. You know, and bacon. Those two together make it okay. All right. <laughs> With this as a background, I want to look at the verses that people use against preterism. That they're saying, well, see, if the Lord returns, this curse should be lifted. And if, since the curse is not lifted, therefore preterism is not true. And again, they use this verse in Revelation. There will no longer be any curse. Okay? So they say, see, no more curse in the New Jerusalem. Well, the first problem here is translation. Look at the ESV. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Now, the commentator, David Ohm, makes this comment. He says this, The healing of the nations is further explained in Revelation 22.3. First, there will no longer be any curse. That phrase is taken from Zechariah 14.11 and applied to the eternal new order in which it finds its attainment. Although the curse, the Septuagint of Zechariah, has anathema and Revelation has kata anathema, both are legitimate renderings of the high arum. High arum is a ban, a curse, um, now, Bob Cruikshank Jr. and I, we've been talking about this because he's studying Zechariah. I'm studying the curse, and we, hey, there's connected here with this verse in Revelation. And as Owen says, the phrase is from Revelation 22.3, no longer will there be any accursed. That's taken from Zechariah 14.11. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Again, the New American Standard here is not the best translation. ESV says, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Now, in Bob's article on Zechariah 14, he writes this. 
Due to the wording of the verse in the English, New American Standard Bible, the natural inclination, inclination is to read the curses of Genesis 3. However, this is not the same word for curse that is used in Genesis, and Zechariah is not promising that snakes will start walking upright or that the ground will stop producing thorns and thistles. The word translated curse in Zechariah 14.11 is hi-aram, and it refers to a devoted thing that is put under a ban. Now, it's hard for us, I think, to wrap our mind under the, uh, what this word hi-aram means, because to be put under a ban by God or to be a devoted thing. We think of devoted thing as something good, maybe. Bob goes on to say Deuteronomy 7, 25-26 is the key verse in understanding the meaning of this word and the concept behind it. So let's look at Deuteronomy 7, 25, and 26. The carved images of the gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourself, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to Yahweh your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Now, both of these terms, devoted to destruction here, are from Hiram. And Klein says, it is the biblical he- in the biblical Hebrew, it meant ban. In other words, ban. You're not allowed to touch that. That is banned from you. Devote. In other words, that's devoted to God. But <laughs> it's confusing because it's devoted to God for destruction. That's what it's devoted for. All right, and that's what it totally means. Often you'll see it's totally given over to the Lord, and it's that's through destruction that it's given to Him. So only God's judgment could reclaim anything placed under this ban. Evan Shoshan, in his concordance, notes that of the 51 occurrences of the biblical verb, hiram, only three of them have the sense of to destroy. All but three of them have the sense to destroy. So this is the hiram is, is destruction. And the principle of hiram applies to some, but not all of the Israelite wars that they're fought in Egypt. We hear this a lot in the Israelite wars. The earliest such instance is found in the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, and here we find that a city is devoted to God. Its inhabitants are destroyed in accordance with the rule of the Hirim for religious dedication. So this city is devoted to God. It's under the ban, which means you've got to destroy it. So both John and Zechariah are tracking on the same idea. The meaning is not the reverse or removal of the Genesis curse. All right? But in fact, he is saying there is nothing accursed, there is nothing under the ban, nothing to be destroyed in the New Jerusalem. There's nothing there to be destroyed. This has nothing to do with the Genesis curse. Yes, the Lord returned in AD 70, and yet the ground curse still is in effect. Now, others have misused Isaiah 65 to attempt to prove that the ground curse has been lifted, and they focus on verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children in calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Yahweh and their descendants with them. Now, they say labor in vain here. Oh, that's women having children. That has to do with the pain put on Adam and Eve. You know, but no, okay? They want to connect this to Genesis 3. The Hebrew words here are not the same. This is at best a stretch. 
to try to say, oh, labor there, that means having children, because it says here she's going to bear children. And, but they say labor, that has to do with the man. He's going to have to labor. He's got to labor in vain. These are not the same words. This is not talking about the curse. And it's not lifted. And if the ground curse has been lifted, when was it lifted? Was it lifted at AD 70? And if it's lifted, why do women still have pain in childbirth? Why do they still want to rule their husbands? All women should be perfectly submissive and happy and, you know. Why do men still oppress women? Why is there so much conflict within a marriage? Why do men still have pain trying to produce for their family? Why is it so hard to produce something from the ground? The pain that men and women experience in their respective roles, I think is a constant reminder to us today and to all generations of the pain of sin. This is what happened because of sin. They're put out of the garden. They spiritually died. That wasn't the end of it. There's a constant conflict now in the marriage because of this. There's a constant pain for the woman in regards to her children. There's constant pain for the man trying to produce and carry a, you know, put on a life for his family, produce for them, provide for them. It's a, I think it's an inescapable illustration of what happens when you disobey the Lord. It's a constant reminder of what disasters sin produces. And women, when you want to dominate your husband, when you're having pain in childbirth, men, when you're struggling, you know, and you just seem to want to be a despot to your wife, conquering her, reigning over her, when you have trouble at work, understand, God's telling you, sin produces problems. Brings trouble to the human life. Now, believers, as we walk in the Spirit, we can overcome much of this pain and disaster. Not that it goes away, but when you're walking in the Spirit, when you're in communion with God, I don't care what's going on in your life, you're okay. You're going to make it, you're going to be fine. Because you're in communion with God, you're going to get through it. But I know that as the wife walks in the Spirit and she submits to her husband, and as the husband walks in the Spirit and loves his wife, this pain is greatly mitigated in the marriage. And there can actually be peace and harmony. But the world we live in, people, is a constant reminder, this is the pain that sin brings. And then when you go out individually and live in pain, and live in sin, God's going to bring more pain in your life. Okay? And this, you know, this battle of lordship, you're not exactly living this way, you're not a Christian. If you're not living this way, you're going to constantly have problems in your life. God's going to discipline you, He's going to chasten you, okay? Life is going to be difficult. But when you live your life dedicated to Christ, seeking to walk in the Spirit, and honor God in all the decisions you make, and everything about your life, it's going to be a blessed life even though the curse is still there. Amen. So that's my take on it, people. I think the curse is still around and you're going to be hard-pressed to prove differently to me because I lived in this world, okay? I see the pain. I know the pain. My wife had three children. I didn't really feel a lot of pain, but I was sitting right there and I watched her see, you know, feel a lot of pain, okay? And I still see the pain that children bring. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. 
Lord, I pray we would just be students of your word and seek to understand it. Lord, it's just so hard to believe that the curse could be lifted when we see all the very things you said would pain the man and the woman still here today, still painting, still causing problems. Lord, help us to realize, help us to see these as illustrations of the damage that sin will bring to a life. And may they cause us, Lord, just to turn to you in devotion, seeking to honor you, seeking to live according to your will and not our own. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Anthony. From the beginning, everything that we want to go through and going through and haven't gone through yet. So it's really a wake-up call and to be have that in context by thinking of being walking with them and living the life that he wants to live as far as having a relationship with them. So. It's definitely a learning experience. And I think these things help us when we put them in perspective to say, how come my wife keeps wanting to boss me around? Oh, the curse. My response is not to dominate. My response is to love her. And, you know, let's try to turn this thing around. Let's, let's make this better within the family. <laughs> uh, it's from Gary and Chris in Pennsylvania. Good morning, Dave, brothers and sisters. The word istavon, Hebrew, he says, equals Hebrew for it's a boy when a boy is born. Just kidding. <laughs> pain. Okay? It that's it talks about pain, both the man and the woman. Alright, it's from Norm. Praise Yahweh. Love, love, love. A nice, juicy, and rare ribeye. <laughs> My wife and I have been grilling almost every other day this summer and feel great. Steaks and chops, not only that, but a very good friend and nurse practitioner told me to absolutely lose the statins. Uh, did that a month ago and am losing the leg pain and fatigue. Thank you so much for your toil, my friend. Amen. You know, statins are one of the most dangerous drugs and the most prolific drug that's put out there, okay? They cause way more problems than they do good, but they're pushed. They're pushed. If your cholesterol even gets near 200, you need to go to a statin. No, you don't. No, you don't. Matter of fact, I just read another study this week that said, Seniors with cholesterol over 250 live longer than those that were under. And it was a long study with a lot of people. Okay, but again, you could find all kinds of things. It's just, that's old school stuff. Gary? Well, you answered this question, but when you started with uh, in the garden and they were picking fruit, I was going to say, how come they weren't picking steaks? You know? But you, got, you answered that. Uh, the other question is in, in uh, uh, Genesis 3.16 talks about increasing the woman's uh, labor pains in childbirth that almost implies that there were no labor pains before the curse. Yeah, I think it does imply that. Were there children? Yeah. I mean, we're well, yeah, I guess there weren't, but there, if she would have had one, there wouldn't have been any pain in it, you know? <laughs> And that's to me. If the curse is reversed, then these things should be gone. Would you agree with that, or mm -hmm. is that a stretch? Well, yeah, he brought the point. He says, "I'll increase your pain." Right. Which means there was pain. No, see, that's not no. the Hebrew doesn't come. The Hebrew doesn't sound like that. All right, the, the idea of an increasing. I'm it's just 
Huh? Well, that's the problem. <laughs> and again, and again, translations. Use use several translations, and, and make sure you stick Young's in there because it, it does. The Hebrew doesn't give the idea of increasing something that's already there. It's just I'm going to really intensify this pain. So not only eating the meat is, is, is what you say good for carnivores and stuff like that, but you really should be looking for the organic stuff as well. As well, yeah. I mean, if you can get you know. Farm raised, grass raised, grass finished beef—that would be the best. Okay, but I, I don't know. A lot of these doctors who push the carnivore diet seem to indicate you're better off if you just eat whatever beef than eating, you know, not. So, well, it does, but they still think that the beef is better. Some of them made arguments that even all these things don't really affect the beef that you're eating, and I don't know. I go along with that and try to eat, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished when you can. But, you know, if it's out of your price range and you can't do that, they're saying it's just better to eat cheap, you know, meat. Better to eat the meat. There's just a lot of stuff in there that can keep you healthy. All right? Um, Jack from California says, The serpent of Genesis was a watcher. Address the curse on the serpent that he was cursed above all livestock and beasts of the field and shall remain on his belly. Uh, I specifically said I'm not dealing with that today, just for time-wise, okay? You know, the curse that was put on that, all right? I, I don't understand that, you know? I don't understand the curse because I believe it was a watcher. I don't think it was an animal. I don't think it was a snake is sitting in the tree saying, hey, come eat this fruit. I don't think he would have bought that. But if, if they've been in the garden for seven years... And the divine council is in the garden with God. They're used to them. They're talking to them. They're with them. They understand that. So, yeah, I think she could have got seduced, so to speak, by a divine being a lot quicker than by a snake. All right? Sean and Rachel from Colorado. Love you all. Is there a study about the seven years before Adam and Eve sinned? No. Um... No, Jubilees mentions it. That's all we know. You know, we don't know that because the Bible doesn't tell us that. But, you know, when you're reading the text, you kind of figure, oh, man, I hope he didn't just do it the first day he got there. You know? <laughs> I mean, I hope he lasted a little longer than that. But we don't, we don't know. But, again, these things added, I'm not, you know, hanging my hat on that and say that's got to be that way because I don't know. But it does indicate he was there for a while. Dave, Mike in Lakeland, Florida, can you text me? That study about cholesterol for us old people. Yeah, there are so many studies out there on that. Um, I'd have to see if I can find that. But yeah, again, it, it, go on Facebook and join one of these carnivore groups. Because a lot of these doctors, uh, Dr. Ken Berry, he's on YouTube, he's on Rumble. He's a family physician and he's really pushes carnivore, but he's very balanced. There's other people on there. There's other doctors that are hardcore. You eat a vegetable, you're going to carnivore hell, okay? No, you know, I mean, that's some of these guys are that way, okay? They, they just are. And others are more, hey, look, this is what you should be the predominance of your diet. You know, everything else is not going to kill you. But Dr. Ken Berry does a lot of research, brings a lot of studies with all the references in them, okay? He's very good. He knows a lot about this stuff, and so he puts out a lot of great information. Ken Berry, YouTube. Rumble, he'll fill you in on all these things, okay? No, I think this, the last study was from Sean, 
what's his last name? Another doctor, he's an, um, yeah, he's another doctor just did something on statins. But I've heard a lot of them do things on statins. It's not hard to find those studies. I remember when, uh, if you had 220 cholesterol, you were okay, and then all of a sudden, that... Yeah, why do they keep lowering it? Mm-hmm. Oh, you can sell more drugs. Oh, now you were fine, but now you need cholesterol. Okay, it is. It is just, just do a study on cholesterol. I mean, this study about longevity. I've heard four or five studies, you know, that proving that over sixty, if your cholesterol is higher, you got a better chance of living longer. Every cell in your body uses cholesterol. Every cell. Andrew. Um, Two hundred years ago. Uh, almost everybody was a farmer. Now it's only one to two percent of the population. Now, before all of most humans were just toiling the ground, but now we're free to work on whatever. Right. If anything, we're on the verge of a golden age if we figure it out. Well, that's true. Everybody was a farmer a couple hundred years back. You know, they—that's what they did. Yeah. And the people who do it now, it's still a difficult thing because you have a drought come in and guess what? Your crops are what you have a storm come in, your crops are wiped out. You know, and that's why the government, you know, helps these farmers out because we need them, people. Okay, they're producing stuff for us. And so we need them. So the more minerals you have in your sale, you'd be better off. The more what? Minerals. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is from Gary and Chris. I was on a statin and stopped it several years ago, and now I have calcium in my arteries. I got a calcium score of 600. I don't think that has anything to do with the statin, Gary. There are, you know, the whole calcification of arteries, I think a lot of seed oil has a big effect on that, okay? That's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that damage it. It's what we're eating, though, okay? It's what we're eating. So, it's, you know, statins don't... They don't stop that, okay? And again, most people who go on statins have different problems. They damage muscles. Statin damages muscle. Your heart is a muscle. Yeah, and it also damages your brain. I read not long ago of a study they did on, and I think Barry, Ken Berry brought this out, on Alzheimer's patients. They went into them and they checked. Almost all of them were on statins. They took them off statins. Their mind came back fully. They could fully function. They remembered. They were no longer in that condition because statins do that but again hey your doctor's going to push it because this is a number one drug okay yes and and the they keep it's just like the blood pressure thing they keep lowering it you know i have a you know a, a machine that i monitor my blood pressure on and i have an app on my phone if mine's 120 over 80 pre-hypertension 120 over 80 it's got to be under those numbers or it's not in the group. And I'm like, where do they, who made these numbers up? Who made, yeah, who made them up? But they threaten you. You're going to die if you don't get this down. But you know, these blood pressure drugs cause all kinds of problems in people. So you're just, you know, you're swapping it around. Tuning in from Cypress, Texas. I love listening to you break down scripture. I've learned a lot. Thanks for all you do. Blessing. Dory, thank you. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, Gary Cole says, there's a good book 
about cholesterol is called the great the great cholesterol con. I, I would dare say there's several books out there on it. Mm. You know, and like I said, if you do research, that's such it's the number one selling drug, so there's just a lot of information from different people on the damage that it breaks. You know, my mother was on it and she was having bad leg pains and I said, get off that drug and she got off it and guess what, her leg pains went away. Mm. You know, that's a mild thing compared to some of the things, the damage it does to people, mm -hmm. you know. She didn't get Alzheimer's, she was sharp as a tack till the day she died. But. Mm. Anybody else comments, questions, we done? Let's go have a steak. This is from Ron Parton. Ron says heavy metals are big on artery hardening too, hmm. predominantly lead. Hmm. So this is checking your water supply, people. You know, it's not just lead paint. Check your water supply. You can get water testers fairly cheap, and you can test what's in your water to find out what's in there. Um, okay, Ron, that's, Ron said, I'm, i got to back up a little. Ron says, Dr. Sean Baker, that's what I was talking about on YouTube as well, huge carnivore. Yeah, Baker is a physician also. He's, he's a huge carnivore. He's six wait, foot five. Wait a second, wait a second. The carnivore people are named Baker and Barry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yep. Uh, Ron says the great cholesterol myth by Dr. Stephen Sinatra. Sugar is the biggest problem. Now, that's another problem. Not only cedars, but sugar. Yeah. I've been doing some research on alcohol and what it does to the body. Ooh, it's frightening, okay? But I found out that alcohol does the same exact damage to the body that sugar does. The only difference is sugar won't get you high like alcohol. Well, some people get high off it, but but it does. But as far as the, what it does to the body, it's the same exact thing as far as the damage that it does to the body. So, Some, some Cholesterol is made up a made-up disease by drug companies for daily consumption. Drug companies prefer daily medications for profits. Well, that's the thing. You know, you're on cholesterol meds. When do you get off them? You don't. You, they want you on, and they want you on forever. Um, the thing that uh, the Yuka app, I think I shared that before, uh, goes from zero to 100, and I go to the store. I scan it and it's like, eh, I don't think I want this. <laughs> well, if we would just do so much better if we read labels. Okay. And here's what I guarantee you you'll find. On almost everything, 99.9% .9 of the products that have labels, you're going to find a seed oil. Second ingredient. Second, first or second mm -hmm. ingredient, a seed oil. Yep. And things you're like, why would that even be in here? Seed oils are very destructive to the body. Okay, and now what I'm seeing a lot on labels, this is a bioengineered product. That should just about scare you to death. Okay, so just before you buy it, don't, oh, this is good stuff. No, read the label. Okay, I love peanut butter, and the, on the peanut butter I buy, it says ingredients peanuts. Amazing. That's all I want in my peanuts. Okay, I don't want all these other. Your sugar and whatever else, you know. They put sugar in just about everything today. Oh, yeah. A can of beans or green beans and you look on the label, sugar. Yeah, we want your green beans to be sweet so you'll eat them. Okay? <laughs> Kill us. 
slowly but surely. All right. This is from Tim and, Sa <coughs> Tim and Sander from California. Blessings. Could the curse of Genesis be a type of the Old Covenant curse, being that the garden was a type of the temple of God? Well, the, here's again the thing. If it's the curse is removed, why are we still having the same problems that the curse names? Why are women still having problems in childbirth? Why do they still want to dominate their husbands? Why do men still you know, want to rule over their wives? Why do men still have problems? That's the question we have to answer. Where? Why? These things should be gone. If it's gone, they should be gone. From California, have you heard about consuming seawater for minerals? No, but I, I know we have to supplement with minerals because we're just not going to get them. Most of the products that are grown don't have any minerals in them anymore. Uh, so we have to add that's something that needs to be supplemented to our diet. Of course, you know, you get a lot of minerals out of beef. I'm not that I'm pushing the carnivore, okay? I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, I don't know who this is from, but it says, I had a conversation with an ER doctor about high blood pressure. He said that they don't actually know anything about blood pressure. Uh -huh. Holy mackerel, an honest doctor. An honest doctor, okay? <laughs> they don't actually know anything. Being the silent killer is something that they know nothing about. So much more that could be said. That's true. And here's the thing. A lot of the stuff they tell you, they have no study behind that. There's no science, so to speak, behind that. They just come up with something and they keep on pushing it. Why? I questioned my cardiologist. I got sent to a cardiologist because they thought they saw something on my heart. He checked me out. You're fine. But, oh, you should go on, you know, you should go on a statin. And I laughed. I said, buddy, let's talk about that. You know, and I'm telling them about statins and what they do. He got on his phone while I was in the office, and he looked it up, and he's sitting there squirreled to it, and he goes, you know, I think you're right. Wow. And I thought, wow, how much am I paying you? How much do you make for me to tell you, you know, because they don't look into it. Because, first of all, they're not allowed to. They have to prescribe this. If they don't prescribe it, they're going to get in trouble. Because, and Dr. Barry would say that. He'd say, I give someone a prescription for a statin because their cholesterol was in this range. He'd say, here's the prescription. If I were you, I'd throw this in the trash on the way out. <laughs> but I have to give it to you. Good, good guy to follow, Barry. He seems very, well, he doesn't understand. He thinks that we've been around for billions and billions of years. But other than that, that's one negative in the carnivore community. Most of these guys think, you know, hey, we've been eating meat for thousands of years. You know, and I'm like, well, I don't know. No, millions of years, they'll say. So, Gary? Well, the only ingredient I was going to complain about is that's in practically everything is high fructose corn syrup. Mm. They don't even use sugar. Yeah. Right, right. And, and sugar's just, you know, don't get the idea that sugar is good and high fructose is bad. Sugar has fructose in it, okay? Yeah. Neither one are good, okay? Neither one are good. And some people say, well, get honey. Same thing, okay? Fructose, it's got a problem, all right? You want things to be sweet, that gives you the idea you've got to keep having sweet things, and that's the problem. Everybody's eating sugar, and it's very dangerous. <laughs> um, this is from Bonnie Tatiar, Tatiar up in uh, New York, and Bonnie's a healthcare professional. She says, "Look at the research shows high dose of vitamin K decalcifying arteries." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, did you get that, people? High doses of vitamin K decalcifying arteries. Hmm. Vitamin K's job is to tell D where to go. Which K? Okay. K1, K2? DK3. Yeah. K2 and D3. It's K2. All right, we done here? Well, we're getting into a... How do we turn this into a health lesson? (laughs) Healthy (laughs) hit, huh? Uh, I don't know, but that's a good question. I think from what I am seeing from the studies, monk fruit is one of the healthier. Um, stevia. What's the other one? Stevia. You know, those are both to be sweeteners that don't produce an insulin response and are better for you. Now, I've heard some people say, well, you're still going to get an insulin response from do. these because your body, thinks it's your body just, when it tastes, your, when you hit your tongue and it's sweet, your body's going to start producing insulin. That may be true, but it would be much milder. Every time you eat, your body produces insulin because that's going to deal with it. It's going to tell it where to go, what to do. Uh, again, I don't know who this is from, but he says, I asked my cardiologist how much research he does. None. <laughs> None. He says they follow protocol. That's true. My doctor told me you can't get vitamin D from the sun. I see. He told me that. I almost... I was like, I just wanted to leave because I'm like, okay, there's no point in even talking to you. All right? You don't get it from the sun. That's the main way you do get it, okay? And that's the best way to get it because the skin produces it, and it, it's the best way. It's better than taking supplements, but we can't get it from the sun now because of the time of year. So you just got to take some supplements. You need something, okay? Because vitamin D is important. People, we got to take care of ourselves. If we don't, we're going to be sickly. We're going to be miserable. And, you know, then we'll go to church and pray for me. I feel terrible. Well, quit eating all the crap. Okay? And you might feel better. It's just, again, any, anybody that goes on a lim- an elimination diet is going to feel better because they just cut out all that, all that crap they're eating. That literally, I mean, I know I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I think they're trying to kill us. I really believe that. <laughs> I mean, you see the young men today compared to, you know, 50 years ago? I mean, everybody's got a little bun on their head and they're like, you know, afraid of everything. You know, they have a, they have a heart attack if something happens. And I'm like, you know, these guys, you know, 50 years ago are storming the beaches. You know, they're running out of these boats onto a beach where they're, they're just watching people die all around them. And they're, they didn't need a safe space. Okay? And I think there's a lot of soy in products, which... You know, produces estrogen. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of soy boys. So <laughs> watch what you eat, guys. It's important. Okay. Oh, let's get off this. Listen. Um, this. How, how am I supposed to say this? This is for opinion only. I'm not a doctor. I'm not making medical recommendations. Uh, check with your doctor who knows nothing about any of this, and he'll give you some drugs to take. Thank you.